Section 13 of Psychopathology of Everyday Life. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Psychopathology of Everyday Life by Sigmund Freud. Translated by A. A. Brill. Read by Mary Schneider. Chapter 12 Determinism, Chance, and Superstitious Beliefs. Part 2. 3 although conscious thought must be altogether ignorant of the motivation of the faulty actions described above yet it would be desirable to discover a psychologic proof of its existence indeed reasons obtained through a deeper knowledge of the unconscious make it probable that such proofs are to be discovered somewhere as a matter of fact phenomena can be demonstrated in two spheres which seem to correspond to an unconscious and hence to a displaced knowledge of those motives a it is a striking and generally to be recognized feature in the behavior of paranoiacs that they attach the greatest significance to the trivial details in the behavior of others details which are usually overlooked by others they interpret and utilize as the basis of far-reaching conclusions for example the last paranoiac seen by me concluded that there was a general understanding among people of his environment because at his departure from the railway station they made a certain motion with one hand another noticed how people walked on the street how they brandished their walking-sticks and the like the category of the accidental requiring no motivation which the normal person lets pass as a part of his own psychic activities and faulty actions is thus rejected by the paranoiac in the application to the psychic manifestations to others all that he observes in others is full of meaning all is explainable but how does he come to look at it in this manner probably here as in many other cases he projects into the mental life of others what exists in his own unconscious activity many things obtrude themselves on consciousness in paranoia which in normal and neurotic persons can only be demonstrated through psychoanalysis as existing in their unconscious in a certain sense the paranoiac is here justified he perceives something that escapes the normal person he sees clearer than one of normal intellectual capacity but his knowledge becomes worthless when he imputes to others the state of affairs he thus recognizes i hope that i shall not be expected to justify every paranoiac interpretation but the point which we grant to paranoia in this conception of chance actions will facilitate for us the psychologic understanding of the conviction which the paranoiac attaches to all these interpretations there is certainly some truth to it even our errors of judgment which are not designated as morbid acquire their feeling of conviction in the same way this feeling is justified for a certain part of the erroneous train of thought or for the source of its origin and we shall later extend it to the remaining relationships b the phenomena of superstition furnish another indication of the unconscious motivation in chance and faulty actions i will make myself clear through the discussion of a simple experience which gave me the starting point to these reflections having returned from vacation my thoughts immediately turned to the patients with whom i was to occupy myself in the beginning of my year's work my first visit was to a very old woman for whom i had twice daily performed the same professional services for many years owing to this monotony unconscious thoughts have often found expression on the way to the patient and during my occupation with her she was over ninety years old it was therefore pertinent to ask oneself at the beginning of each year how much longer she was likely to live on the day of which i speak i was in a hurry and took a carriage to her house every coachman at the cab stand near my house knew the old woman's address as each of them had often driven me there this day it happened that the driver did not stop in front of her house but before one of the same number in a nearby and really similar-looking parallel street i noticed the mistake and reproached the coachman who apologized for it is it of any significance when i am taken to a house where the old woman is not to be found certainly not to me but were i superstitious i should see an omen in this incident a hint of fate that this would be the last year for the old woman 
a great many omens which have been preserved by history have been founded on no better symbolism of course i explain the incident as an accident without further meaning the case would have been entirely different had i come on foot and absorbed in thought or through distraction i had gone to the house on the parallel street instead of the correct one i would not explain that as an accident but as an action with unconscious intent requiring interpretation my explanation of this lapse in walking would probably be that i expected that the time would soon come when i should not meet the old woman any longer i therefore differ from a superstitious person in the following manner i do not believe that an occurrence in which my mental life takes no part can teach me anything hidden concerning the future shaping of reality but i do believe that an unintentional manifestation of my mental activity surely contains something concealed which belongs only to my mental life that is i believe in outer real chance but not in inner psychic accidents with the superstitious person the case is reversed he knows nothing of the motive of his chance and faulty actions he believes in the existence of psychic contingencies he is therefore inclined to attribute meaning to external chance which manifests itself in actual occurrence and to see in the accident a means of expression for something hidden outside of him there are two differences between me and the superstitious person first he projects the motive to the outside while i look for it in myself second he explains the accident by an event which i trace to a thought what he considers hidden corresponds to the unconscious with me and the compulsion not to let chance pass as chance but to explain it as common to both of us thus i admit that this conscious ignorance and unconscious knowledge of the motivation of psychic accidentalness is one of the psychic roots of superstition because the superstitious person knows nothing of the motivation of his own accidental actions and because the fact of this motivation strives for a place in his recognition he is compelled to dispose of them by displacing them into the outer world if such a connection exists it can hardly be limited to this single case as a matter of fact i believe that a large portion of the mythological conception of the world which reaches far into the most modern religions is nothing but psychology projected into the outer world the dim perception the endopsychic perception as it were of psychic factors and relations of the unconscious was taken as a model in the construction of a transcendental reality which is destined to be changed again by science into psychology of the unconscious it is difficult to express it in other terms the analogy to paranoia must come to our aid we venture to explain in this way the myths of paradise and the fall of man of god of good and evil of immortality and the like that is to transform metaphysics into metapsychology the gap between the paranoiac's displacement and that of superstition is narrower than appears at first sight when human beings began to think they were obviously compelled to explain the outer world in an anthropomorphic sense by a multitude of personalities in their own image the accidents which they explained superstitiously were thus actions and expressions of persons in that regard they behaved just like paranoiacs who draw conclusions from insignificant signs which others give them and like all normal persons who justly take the unintentional actions of their fellow-beings as a basis for the estimation of their characters only in our modern philosophical but by no means finished views of life does superstition seem so much out of place in the view of life of the pre-scientific times and nations it was justified and consistent the roman who gave up an important undertaking because he sighted an ill-omened flock of birds was relatively right his action was consistent with his principles but if he withdrew from an undertaking because he had stumbled on his threshold he was absolutely superior even to us unbelievers he was a better psychologist than we are striving to become 
for his stumbling could demonstrate to him the existence of a doubt an internal counter-current the force of which could weaken the power of his intention at the moment of its execution for only by concentrating all psychic powers on the desired aim can one be assured of perfect success how does schiller's tell who hesitated so long to shoot the apple from his son's head answer the bailiff's question why he had provided himself with a second arrow with a second arrow i would have pierced you had i struck my dear child and truly i should not have failed to reach you four whoever has had the opportunity of studying the concealed psychic feelings of persons by means of psychoanalysis can also tell something new concerning the quality of unconscious motives which express themselves in superstition nervous persons afflicted with compulsive thinking and compulsive states who are often very intelligent show very plainly that superstition originates from repressed hostile and cruel impulses the greater part of superstition signifies fear of impending evil and he who has frequently wished evil to others but because of a good bringing up has repressed the same into the unconscious will be particularly apt to expect punishment for such unconscious evil in the form of a misfortune threatening him from without if we concede that we have by no means exhausted the psychology of superstition in these remarks we must on the other hand at least touch upon the question whether real roots of superstition should be altogether denied whether there are really no omens prophetic dreams telepathic experiences manifestations of supernatural forces and the like i am now far from willing to repudiate without anything further all these phenomena concerning which we possess so many minute observations even from men of intellectual prominence and which should certainly form a basis for further investigation we may even hope that some of these observations will be explained by our present knowledge of the unconscious psychic processes without necessitating radical changes in our present aspect if still other phenomena as for example those maintained by the spiritualists should be proven we should then consider the modification of our laws as demanded by the new experience without becoming confused in regard to the relation of things of this world in the sphere of these analyses i can only answer the questions here proposed subjectively that is in accordance with my personal experience i am sorry to confess that i belong to that class of unworthy individuals before whom the spirits cease their activities and the supernatural disappears so that i have never been in position to experience anything personally that would stimulate belief in the miraculous like everybody else i have had forebodings and experienced misfortunes but the two evaded each other so that nothing followed the foreboding and the misfortune struck me unannounced when as a young man i lived alone in a strange city i frequently heard my name suddenly pronounced by an unmistakable dear voice and i then made a note of the exact moment of the hallucination in order to inquire carefully of those at home what had occurred at that time there was nothing to it on the other hand i later worked among my patients calmly and without foreboding while my child almost bled to death nor have i ever been able to recognize as unreal phenomena any of the forebodings reported to me by my patients the belief in prophetic dreams numbers many adherents because it can be supported by the fact that some things really so happen in the future as they were previously foretold by the wish of the dream but in this there is little to be wondered at as many far-reaching deviations may be regularly demonstrated between a dream and the fulfilment which the credulity of the dreamer prefers to neglect a nice example one which may be justly called prophetic was once brought to me for exhaustive analysis by an intelligent and truth-loving patient 
she related that she once dreamed that she had met a former friend and family physician in front of a certain store in a certain street and the next morning when she went downtown she actually met him at the place named in the dream i may observe that the significance of this wonderful coincidence was not proven to be due to any subsequent event that is it could not be justified through future occurrences careful examination definitely established the fact that there was no proof that the woman recalled the dream in the morning following the night of the dream that is before the walk and before the meeting she could offer no objection when this state of affairs was presented in a manner that robbed this episode of everything miraculous leaving only an interesting psychologic problem one morning she had walked through this very street had met her old family physician before that certain store and on seeing him received the conviction that during the preceding night she had dreamed of this meeting at this place the analysis then showed with great probability how she came to this conviction to which in accordance with the general rule we cannot deny a certain right to credence a meeting at a definite place following a previous expectation really describes the fact of a rendezvous the old family physician awakened her memory of old times when meetings with a third person also a friend of the physician were of marked significance to her since that time she had continued her relations with this gentleman and the day before the mentioned dream she had waited for him in vain if i could report in greater detail the circumstances here before us i could easily show that the illusion of the prophetic dream at the sight of the friend of former times is perchance equivalent to the following speech ah doctor you now remind me of my bygone times when i never had to wait in vain for n when we had arranged a meeting i have observed in myself a simple and easily explained example which is probably a good model for similar occurrences of those familiar remarkable coincidences wherein we meet a person of whom we were just thinking during a walk through the inner city a few days after the title of professor was bestowed on me which carries with it a great deal of prestige even in monarchical cities my thoughts suddenly merged into a childish revenge fantasy against a certain married couple some months previous they had called me to see their little daughter who suffered from an interesting convulsive manifestation following the appearance of a dream i took a great interest in the case the genesis of which i believed i could surmise but the parents were unfavorable to my treatment and gave me to understand that they thought of applying to a foreign authority who cured by means of hypnotism i now fancied that after the failure of this attempt the parents begged me to resume my treatment that they now had full confidence in me etc but i answered now that i have become a professor you have confidence in me the title has made no change in my ability if you could not use me when i was instructor you can get along without me now that i am professor at this point my fantasy was interrupted by a loud good morning professor and as i looked up there passed me the same couple on whom i had just taken this imaginary vengeance the next reflection destroyed the semblance of the miraculous i was walking towards this couple on a straight almost deserted street glancing up hastily at a distance of perhaps twenty steps from me i had spied and realized their stately personalities but this perception following the model of a negative hallucination was set aside by certain emotionally accentuated motives and then asserted itself in the apparently spontaneous emerging fantasy a similar experience is related by brill which also throws some light on the nature of telepathy Quote, while engrossed in conversation during our customary sunday evening dinner at one of the large new york restaurants i suddenly stopped and irrelevantly remarked to my wife i wonder how dr r is doing in pittsburgh she looked at me much astonished and said 
why that is exactly what i have been thinking for the last few seconds either you have transferred this thought to me or i have transferred it to you how can you otherwise explain this strange phenomenon i had to admit that i could offer no solution our conversation throughout the dinner showed not the remotest association to dr r nor so far as our memories went had we heard or spoken of him for some time being a sceptic i refused to admit that there was anything mysterious about it although inwardly i felt quite uncertain to be frank i was somewhat mystified but we did not remain very long in this state of mind for on looking toward the cloak-room we were surprised to see dr r though closer inspection showed our mistake we were both struck by the remarkable resemblance of this stranger to dr r from the position of the cloak-room we were forced to conclude that this stranger had passed our table absorbed in our conversation we had not noticed him consciously but the visual image had stirred up the association of this double dr r that we should both have experienced the same thought is also quite natural the last word from our friend was to the effect that he had taken up private practice in pittsburgh and being aware of the vicissitudes that beset the beginner it was quite natural to wonder how fortune smiled upon him what promised to be a supernatural manifestation was thus easily explained on a normal basis but had we not noticed the stranger before he left the restaurant it would have been impossible to exclude the mysterious i venture to say that such simple mechanisms are at the bottom of the most complicated telepathic manifestations at least such has been my experience in all cases accessible to investigation another solution of an apparent foreboding was reported by otto rank Quote, some time ago i had experienced a remarkable variation of that peculiar coincidence wherein one meets a person who has just been occupying one's thoughts shortly before christmas i went to the austro-hungarian bank in order to obtain ten new silver crown pieces destined for christmas gifts absorbed in ambitious fantasies which dealt with the contrast of my meagre means to the enormous sums in the banking-house i turned into the narrow street to the bank in front of the door i saw an automobile and many people going in and out i thought to myself the officials will have plenty of time for my new crowns naturally i shall be quick about it i shall put down the paper notes to be exchanged and say please give me gold i realized my mistake at once i was to have said for silver and awoke from my fantasies i was now only a few steps from the entrance and noticed a young man coming toward me who looked familiar but whom i could not identify definitely on account of my short-sightedness as he came nearer i recognized him as a classmate of my brother whose name was gold and from whose brother a well-known journalist i had great expectations in the beginning of my literary career but these expectations had not materialized and with them had vanished the hoped-for material success with which my fantasies were occupying themselves on my way to the bank thus engrossed i must have unconsciously perceived the approach of mr gold who impressed himself on my conscience while i was dreaming on material success and thereby caused me to ask the cashier for gold instead of the inferior silver but on the other hand the paradoxical fact that my unconscious was able to perceive an object long before it was recognized by the eye might in part be explained by the complex readiness of bluler for my mind was attuned to the material and contrary to my better knowledge it guided my steps from the very beginning to buildings where gold and paper money were exchanged to the category of the wonderful and uncanny we may also add that strange feeling we perceive in certain moments and situations when it seems as if we have already had exactly the same experience or had previously found ourselves in the same situation 
yet we are never successful in our efforts to recall clearly those former experiences and situations i know that i follow only the loose colloquial expression when i designate that which stimulates us in such moments as a feeling we undoubtedly deal with a judgment and indeed with a judgment of cognition but these cases nevertheless have a character peculiar to themselves and besides we must not ignore the fact that we never recall what we are seeking i do not know whether this phenomenon of deja vu was ever seriously offered as a proof of a former psychic existence of the individual but it is certain that psychologists have taken an interest in it and have attempted to solve the riddle in a multitude of speculative ways none of the proposed tentative explanations seem right to me because none takes account of anything but the accompanying manifestations and the favoring conditions of the phenomenon those psychic processes which according to my observation are alone responsible for the explanation of the deja vu namely the unconscious fantasies are generally neglected by psychologists even to-day i believe that it is wrong to designate the feeling of having experienced something before as an illusion on the contrary in such moments something is really touched that we have already experienced only we cannot consciously recall the latter because it never was conscious in short the feeling of deja vu corresponds to the memory of an unconscious fantasy there are unconscious fantasies or daydreams just as there are similar conscious creations which every one knows from personal experience i realize that the object is worthy of most minute study but i will here give the analysis of only one case of deja vu in which the feeling was characterized by particular intensity and persistence a woman of thirty-seven years asserted that she most distinctly remembered that at the age of twelve and a half she paid her first visit to some school friends in the country and as she entered the garden she immediately had the feeling of having been there before this feeling was repeated as she went through the living-rooms so that she believed she knew beforehand how big the next room was what views one could have on looking out of it etc but the belief that this feeling of recognition might have its source in a previous visit to the house and garden perhaps a visit paid in earliest childhood was absolutely excluded and disproved by statements from her parents the woman who related this sought no psychologic explanation but saw in the appearance of this feeling a prophetic reference to the importance which these friends later assumed in her emotional life on taking into consideration however the circumstance under which this phenomenon presented itself to her we found the way to another conception when she decided upon this visit she knew that these girls had an only brother who was seriously ill in the course of the visit she actually saw him she found him looking very badly and thought to herself that he would soon die but it happened that her own only brother had had a serious attack of diphtheria some months before and during his illness she had lived for weeks with relatives far from her parental home she believed that her brother was taking part in this visit to the country imagined even that this was his first long journey since his illness still her memory was remarkably indistinct in regard to these points whereas all other details and particularly the dress which she wore that day remained most clearly before her eyes to the initiated it will not be difficult to conclude from these suggestions that the expectation of her brother's death had played a great part in the girl's mind at that time and that either it never became conscious or it was more energetically repressed after the favorable issue of the illness under other circumstances she would have been compelled to wear another dress namely mourning clothes she found the analogous situation in her friend's home their only brother was in danger of an early death an event that really came to pass a short time after 
she might have consciously remembered that she had lived through a similar situation a few months previous but instead of recalling what was inhibited through repression she transferred the memory feeling to the locality to the garden and the house and merged into it the faux reconnaissance that she had already seen everything exactly as it was from the fact of the repression we may conclude that the former expectation of the death of her brother was not far from evincing the character of a wish fantasy she would then have become the only child in her later neurosis she suffered in the most intense manner from the fear of losing her parents behind which the analysis disclosed as usual the unconscious wish of the same content my own experience of deja vu i can trace in a similar manner to the emotional constellation of the moment it may be expressed as follows that would be another occasion for awakening certain fantasies unconscious and unknown which were formed in me at one time or another as a wish to improve my situation five recently when i had occasion to recite to a colleague of a philosophical turn of mind some examples of name-forgetting with their analyses he hastened to reply that is all very well but with me the forgetting of a name proceeds in a different manner evidently one cannot dismiss this question as simply as that i do not believe that my colleague had ever thought of an analysis for the forgetting of a name nor could he say how the process differed in him but his remark nevertheless touches upon a problem which many would be inclined to place in the foreground does the solution given for faulty and chance actions apply in general or only in particular cases and if only in the latter what are the conditions under which it may also be employed in the explanation of the other phenomena in answer to this question my experiences leave me in the lurch i can only urge against considering the demonstrated connections as rare for as often as i have made the test in myself and with my patients it was always definitely demonstrated exactly as in the examples reported or there were at least good reasons to assume this one should not be surprised however when one does not succeed every time in finding the concealed meaning of the symptomatic action as the amount of inner resistances ranging themselves against the solution must be considered a deciding factor also it is not always possible to explain every individual dream of one's self or of patients to substantiate the general validity of the theory it is enough if one can penetrate only a certain distance into the hidden associations the dream which proves refractory when the solution is attempted on the following day can often be robbed of its secret a week or a month later when the psychic factors combating one another have been reduced as a consequence of a real change that has meanwhile taken place the same applies to the solution of faulty and symptomatic actions it would therefore be wrong to affirm of all cases which resist analysis that they are caused by another psychic mechanism than that here revealed such assumption requires more than negative proofs moreover the readiness to believe in a different explanation of faulty and symptomatic actions which probably exists universally in all normal persons does not prove anything it is obviously an expression of the same psychic forces which produced the secret which therefore strives to protect and struggle against its elucidation on the other hand we must not overlook the fact that the repressed thoughts and feelings are not independent in attaining expression in symptomatic and faulty actions the technical possibility for such an adjustment of the innervations may be furnished independently of them and this is then gladly utilized by the intention of the repressed material to come to conscious expression in the case of linguistic faulty actions an attempt has been made by philosophers and philologists 
to verify through minute observations what structural and functional relations enter into the service of such intention if in the determinations of faulty and symptomatic actions we separate the unconscious motive from its coactive physiological and psychophysical relations the question remains open whether there are still other factors within normal limits which like the unconscious motive and in its place can produce faulty and symptomatic actions on the road of the relations it is not my task to answer this question six since the discussion of speech blunders we have been content to demonstrate that faulty actions have a concealed motive and through the aid of psychoanalysis we have traced our way to the knowledge of their motivation the general nature and peculiarities of the psychic factors brought to expression in these faulty actions we have hitherto left almost without consideration at any rate we have not attempted to define them more accurately or to examine into their lawfulness nor will we now attempt a thorough elucidation of the subject as the first steps have already taught us that it is more feasible to enter this structure from another side here we can put before ourselves certain questions which i will cite in their order one what is the content and the origin of the thoughts and feelings which show themselves through faulty and chance actions two what are the conditions which force a thought or a feeling to make use of these occurrences as a means of expression and place it in a position to do so three can constant and definite associations be demonstrated between the manner of the faulty action and the qualities brought to expression through it i shall begin by bringing together some material for answering the last question in the discussion of the examples of speech blunders we found it necessary to go beyond the contents of the intended speech and we had to seek the cause of the speech disturbance outside the intention the latter was quite clear in a series of cases and was known to the consciousness of the speaker in the example that seemed most simple and transparent it was a similar sounding but different conception of the same thought which disturbed its expression without any one being able to say why the one succumbed and the other came to the surface in a second group of cases one conception succumbed to a motive which did not however prove strong enough to cause complete submersion the conception which was withheld was clearly presented to consciousness only of the third group can we affirm unreservedly that the disturbing thought differed from the one intended and it is obvious that it may establish an essential distinction the disturbing thought is either connected with the disturbed one through a thought association disturbance through inner contradiction or it is substantially strange to it and just the disturbed word is connected with the disturbing thought through a surprising outer association which is frequently unconscious in the examples which i have given from my psychoanalyses it is found that the entire speech is either under the influence of thoughts which have become active simultaneously or under the absolutely unconscious thoughts which betray themselves either through the disturbance itself or which evince an indirect influence by making it possible for the individual parts of the unconsciously intended speech to disturb one another the retained or unconscious thoughts from which the disturbances in speech emanate are of most varied origin a general survey does not reveal any definite direction comparative examinations of examples of mistakes in reading and writing lead to the same conclusions isolated cases as in speech blunders seem to owe their origin to an unmotivated work of condensation but we should be pleased to know whether special conditions must not be fulfilled in order that such condensation which is considered regular in the dream-work and faulty in our waking thoughts should take place no information concerning this can be obtained from the examples themselves 
but i merely refuse from this to draw the conclusion that there are no such conditions as for instance the relaxation of conscious attention for i have learned elsewhere that automatic actions are especially characterized by correctness and reliability i would rather emphasize the fact that here as so frequently in biology it is the normal relations or those approaching the normal that are less favorable objects for investigation than the pathological what remains obscure in the explanation of these most simple disturbances will according to my expectation be made clear through the explanation of more serious disturbances also mistakes in reading and writing do not lack examples in which more remote and more complicated motivation can be recognized there is no doubt that the disturbances of the speech functions occur more easily and make less demand on the disturbing forces than other psychic acts but one is on different ground when it comes to the examination of forgetting in the literal sense that is the forgetting of past experiences to distinguish this forgetting from the others we designate sensu strictiori the forgetting of proper names and foreign words as in chapters one and two as slips and the forgetting of resolutions as omissions the principal conditions of the normal process of forgetting are unknown we are also reminded of the fact that not all is forgotten which we believe to be our explanation here deals only with those cases in which the forgetting arouses our astonishment in so far as it infringes the rule that the unimportant is forgotten while the important matter is guarded by memory analysis of these examples of forgetting which seem to demand a special explanation shows that the motive of forgetting is always an unwillingness to recall something which may evoke painful feelings we come to the conjecture that this motive universally strives for expression in psychic life but is inhibited through other and contrary forces from regularly manifesting itself the extent and significance of this dislike to recall painful impressions seems worthy of the most painstaking psychologic investigation the question as to what special conditions render possible the universally resistant forgetting in individual cases cannot be solved through this added association a different factor steps into the foreground in the forgetting of resolutions the supposed conflict resulting in the repression of the painful memory becomes tangible and in the analysis of the examples one regularly recognizes a counter-will which opposes but does not put an end to the resolution as in previously discussed faulty acts we here also recognize two types of the psychic process the counter-will either turns directly against the resolution in intentions of some consequence or it is substantially foreign to the resolution itself and establishes its connection with it through an outer association in almost indifferent resolutions the same conflict governs the phenomena of erroneously carried out actions the impulse which manifests itself in the disturbances of the action is frequently a counter-impulse still oftener it is altogether a strange impulse which only utilizes the opportunity to express itself through a disturbance in the execution of the action the cases in which the disturbance is the result of an inner contradiction are the most significant ones and also deal with the more important activities the inner conflict in the chance or symptomatic actions then merges into the background those motor expressions which are least thought of or are entirely overlooked by consciousness serve as the expression of numerous unconscious or restrained feelings for the most part they represent symbolically wishes and phantoms the first question as to the origin of the thoughts and emotions which find expression in faulty actions we can answer by saying that in a series of cases 
the origin of the disturbing thoughts can be readily traced to repressed emotions of the psychic life even in healthy persons egotistic jealous and hostile feelings and impulses burdened by the pressure of moral education often utilize the path of faulty actions to express in some way their undeniably existing force which is not recognized by the higher psychic instances allowing these faulty and chance actions to continue corresponds in great part to a comfortable toleration of the unmoral the manifold sexual currents play no insignificant part in these repressed feelings that they appear so seldom in the thoughts revealed by the analyses of my examples is simply a matter of coincidence as i have undertaken the analyses of numerous examples from my own psychic life the selection was partial from the first and aimed at the exclusion of sexual matters at other times it seems that the disturbing thoughts originated from the most harmless objection and consideration we have now reached the answer to the second question that is what psychologic conditions are responsible for the fact that a thought must seek expression not in its complete form but as it were in parasitic form as a modification and disturbance of another from the most striking examples of faulty actions it is quite obvious that this determinant should be sought in a relation to conscious capacity or in the more or less firmly pronounced character of the repressed material but an examination of this series of examples shows that this character consists of many indistinct elements the tendency to overlook something because it is wearisome or because the concerned thought does not really belong to the intended matter these feelings seem to play the same role as motives for the suppression of a thought which later depends for expression on the disturbance of another as the moral condemnation of a rebellious emotional feeling or as the origin of absolutely unconscious trains of thought an insight into the general nature of the condition of faulty and chance actions cannot be gained in this way however this investigation gives us one single significant fact the more harmless the motivation of the faulty act the less obnoxious and hence the less incapable of consciousness the thought to which it gives expression is the easier also becomes the solution of the phenomenon after we have turned our attention toward it the simplest cases of speech blunders are immediately noticed and spontaneously corrected where one deals with motivation through actually repressed feelings the solution requires a painstaking analysis which may sometimes strike against difficulties or turn out unsuccessful one is therefore justified in taking the result of this last investigation as an indication of the fact that the satisfactory explanation of the psychologic determinations of faulty and chance actions is to be acquired in another way and from another source the indulgent reader can therefore see in these discussions the demonstration of the surfaces of fracture in which this theme was quite artificially evolved from a broader connection seven just a few words to indicate the direction of this broader connection the mechanism of the faulty and chance actions as we have learned to know it through the application of analysis shows the most essential points in agreement with the mechanism of dream formation which i have discussed in the chapter the dream work of my book in the interpretation of dreams here as there one finds the condensation and compromise formation contamination in addition the situation is much the same since unconscious thoughts find expression as modifications of other thoughts in unusual ways and through outer associations the incongruities absurdities and errors in the dream content by virtue of which the dream is scarcely recognized as a psychic achievement originate in the same way to be sure through freer usage of the existing material as the common error of our everyday life 
here as there the appearance of the incorrect function is explained through the peculiar interference of two or more correct actions an important conclusion can be drawn from this combination the peculiar mode of operation whose most striking function we recognize in the dream content should not be adjudged only to the sleeping state of the psychic life when we possess abundant proof of its activity during the waking state in the form of faulty actions the same connection also forbids us assuming that these psychic processes which impress us as abnormal and strange are determined by deep-seated decay of psychic activity or by morbid state of function the correct understanding of this strange psychic work which allows the faulty actions to originate like the dream pictures will only be possible after we have discovered that the psychoneurotic symptoms particularly the psychic formations of hysteria and compulsion neurosis repeat in their mechanisms all the essential features of this mode of operation the continuation of our investigation would therefore have to begin at this point there is still another special interest for us in considering the faulty chance and the symptomatic actions in the light of this last analogy if we compare them to the function of the psychoneuroses and the neurotic symptoms two frequently recurring statements gain in sense and support namely that the borderline between the nervous normal and abnormal states is indistinct and that we are all slightly nervous regardless of all medical experience one may construe various types of such barely suggested nervousness the formes frustes of the neuroses there may be cases in which only a few symptoms appear or they may manifest themselves rarely or in mild forms the extenuation may be transferred to the number intensity or to the temporal outbreak of the morbid manifestation it may also happen that just this type which forms the most frequent transition between health and disease may never be discovered the transition type whose morbid manifestations come in the form of faulty and symptomatic actions is characterized by the fact that the symptoms are transformed to the least important psychic activities while everything that can lay claim to a higher psychic value remains free from disturbance when the symptoms are disposed of in a reverse manner that is when they appear in the most important individual and social activities in a manner to disturb the functions of nourishment and sexual relations professional and social life such disposition is found in the severe cases of neurosis and is perhaps more characteristic of the latter than the multiformity or vividness of the morbid manifestations but the common characteristic of the mildest as well as the severest cases to which the faulty and chance actions contribute lies in the ability to refer the phenomena to unwelcome repressed psychic material which though pushed away from consciousness is nevertheless not robbed of all capacity to express itself that is the end of the psychopathology of everyday life.